Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When U.S. police receive a report of a school shooting, a full special weapons and tactics or SWAT team is immediately deployed. But many such reports are hoaxes, and it seems that there's a rising number of them. And as the final season of The Crown comes out, a little pause to consider what it is. Royal drama? Soap opera? It's tempting to imagine it as something closer to historical record, which it certainly isn't. It'll nevertheless change how history is seen. First up, though. For 40 days, this has been the sound echoing through the Gaza Strip. And this week, it was accompanied by a devastating scene at the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Israeli soldiers conducted a raid on the building that's been used both for medical treatment and for shelter. Medical staff tried to evacuate as many patients as they could from the building. while premature babies in the neonatal intensive care unit were relocated to another section of the hospital. Insufficient power meant that incubators were set aside and the babies were gathered together on stretchers. Six of them were reported to have died in a single day. The Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, have justified their offensive by accusing Hamas of using civilians as human shields and hospitals as military bases. Based on intelligence information and an operational necessity, IDF forces are carrying out a precise and targeted operation against Hamas in a specified area in the Shifa hospital. The IDF is conducting a ground operation in Gaza to defeat Hamas and rescue our hostages. A representative from Doctors Without Borders based in Jordan says maintaining contact with colleagues still working at Al-Shifa Hospital has become next to impossible. Many of the people injured in the areas around the hospital are not allowed to enter the hospital. Ambulances have been targeted. All this is insane. It's unacceptable. Probably this is the most intensified targeting of health facilities that we ever witnessed. The Gaza Strip's Ministry of Health, which is run by Hamas, estimates that more than 11,000 civilians have been killed so far, two-thirds of them women and children. But the Israeli military operation shows no sign of slowing. We're almost at the end of three weeks of this ground offensive by Israel in Gaza. And what we've seen is the Israeli army sending a very large amount of forces, equaling about four 
armored divisions and basically taking control of wide areas, both within Gaza City and the towns around it. Anshul Pfeffer is our Israel correspondent and is based in Jerusalem. Israeli military is now deeper in Gaza than it has been for 30 years since 1993 when Israel, under the Oslo Accords, transferred control of the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian Authority. They're in the center of Gaza City and in many of its main neighborhoods. And Angel, you've been embedded with the Israel Defense Forces. What have you been seeing in your time on the ground? And even though it's something that I knew about from briefings and from being in headquarters outside Gaza, seeing the operation on the screens, when you're actually on the ground, you see with all your senses what it is to be in a city which is both totally emptied almost from its residents, nearly a million people, and many, many parts of its streets, buildings, infrastructure have been destroyed in the fighting and Israel's search and destroy missions, that you understand that this is a city which, to all purposes, is no longer habitable. Nobody will have a home to return to once they're allowed back, and there'll have to be a major rebuilding operation. And tell me about what you've seen when you've gone in with the soldiers. So... I went in with an infantry battalion, but an infantry battalion nowadays in the Israeli military will also have tanks and it'll have teams of combat engineers. In the case of the 931st battalion I was with, they also had a squad of dog handlers, integrated combined arms, and they're focused on trying to look for every single tunnel shaft they can find, every building that they believe was used by Hamas, searching for weapons, searching for tunnel exits, and when they find them, They destroy them either with explosives or they bring in some heavy mechanical equipment to just bulldoze over that building. The soldiers aren't allowed to go themselves into the tunnels. There's a standing order that nobody goes in. They do try and use both dogs with cameras and other types of robotic equipment and try to understand what kind of a shaft they've found. Is this just an offshoot of a small local tunnel as it part of a larger network. But there's a limit also to that. They are looking also for Hamas fighters and they have had some skirmishes with them. But from everyone I've spoken to, these are happening less and less. And the questions that they're asking themselves are, where have they gone? Are they alive and still hiding deeper in the tunnel network? Are many of them perhaps dead in the tunnels? It does look like a lot of them have probably fled south along with almost all the people living in Gaza. And there's been a lot of focus on hospitals in Gaza, in particular the the Al-Shifa facility. What can you tell us about the operation in and around there? So right now in Gaza, most of what our listeners are probably seeing on television at home will be scenes from around hospitals like Al-Shifa. And there's something slightly misleading about those scenes. This is basically the only part of the city where you still have uh, relatively significant numbers of civilians. And Once the Israeli army is trying to take control of the entire city, then the biggest tension will be naturally around those places where the remaining civilians have concentrated and where there are people who can't leave. What makes this even more difficult and and, and tense is the intelligence assessment. Both of the Israelis and the American uh, intelligence community has backed it up as well in recent days, that these hospitals are being used at the same time by Hamas as command centers, as headquarters. So we have to bear in mind, Al-Shifa is a symbol for both sides. Israelis have, in previous operations, spoken of Al-Shifa as being the location where Hamas leadership hold up in some underground bunker. 
every time there's another round of warfare with Israel. For the Palestinians, this is a symbol of how Israel is trying to attack them. And there's been, for now, a week of a sort of a standoff outside Al-Shifa. Early on Wednesday morning, Israeli special forces went into a small part of the compound uh, and they also brought with their medical teams who were carrying incubators which had been bought from Israeli hospitals and a team of Arabic-speaking officers to try and translate. But so far, that hasn't resulted in any real agreement between the medical staff and the Israeli army on how to evacuate the hospital. The Israelis are saying that some of the medical staff are being coerced by Hamas. And there's also this PR campaign by both sides to try and show how each side is acting in inhuman ways. But the truth is that so far there has been very little fighting actually inside the hospital. It's mainly happening around. There's been some gunfights in the streets leading to the hospital. And what about the, the broader situation for civilians in Gaza? How, how is that changing as this, as this grinds on? So perhaps we should point out now that when we're talking about Gaza, we're talking about the southern half of the Gaza Strip. Now almost everybody who lived in the entire Gaza Strip are there in southern Gaza, over 2 million people. And the living conditions weren't great there before this war began, and they're much more difficult now. Gaza was supplied before the war through two border crossings. One, the Rafah crossing, which comes through Egypt, is still functioning, but it's open only a few hours a day. Some days the Egyptians don't even open it. About two-thirds of supplies going into Gaza went through Kerem Shalom, which is an Israeli crossing. And right now, Kerem Shalom is closed. Ever since the war began, Israel said there will be no supplies going into Gaza through our territory. And so without the main crossing, all the capacity now has to go through Egypt. And there's another issue there because Egypt are saying we will let the Israelis decide what goes in and how it goes in. So anything going in through Egypt first has to be trucked to another border crossing between Israel and Egypt. There, at an Israeli facility, there's a security inspection to make sure that there's no weapons inside the shipments, and then it goes into Rafah and from there into Gaza. So this also takes a lot more time. This limits the amount of aid going into Gaza at a time when Gaza's needs are much more than usual. The winter here is quite short, but it's beginning now. We'll have two or three months of rain and colder weather, so the need for shelter is even more acute. And all the supplies for that have to come outside of Gaza. And there's this very narrow bottleneck through which it's going for now. And so what happens next then? Essentially, the the goal of clearing out Gaza City seems almost complete. What now with all of Gaza's residents crammed in the south? Well, Israel now has to make two very difficult decisions. First of all, the Netanyahu government has said that they're going to destroy Hamas's capability in all of the Gaza Strip. They've done airstrikes on the south, but as we've seen, they need to send in troops on the ground to actually clear out those infrastructures. How do they do that with more than 2 million people crowded now into the south? They can't send them back up north because everything's destroyed up north. And the world is looking, the Biden administration has given Israel backing so far. I don't think they'll get that same kind of backing for a second phase of the campaign in the south. And then there's the question of the aid. When does Israel start allowing aid to go through its territory? So far, the political atmosphere in Israel following the Hamas atrocities of October 7, has been that, no, we're not going to help them. So these are two major decisions still facing the Netanyahu government, and we have no indication yet of what they're going to decide. Thanks very much for your time, Anshul. Thanks as ever for having me. 
Much of what Israel would call success in Gaza will depend on how the discovery and destruction of its tunnels plays out. This week, my colleagues over on Babbage, our weekly subscriber-only show on science and technology, explore that in depth. They look back through the long history of tunnel warfare and examine Hamas's tunnels as architecture and as a possible site of war crimes. To listen, you'll need to be a subscriber, either to our print or digital editions, or to Economist Podcasts Plus, which for the moment can still be yours for 30 days for free. Head to the show notes to find out more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Watch out, 129, 127, 118, 70, uh, 70. Front entrance elementary school. My key card is not working. What you're hearing is the sound of armed law enforcement officers walking through a school in Aspen, Colorado, searching for an active shooter. Caitlin Tosh is a producer for Economist Films. On the morning of February 22nd this year, police in Aspen received a call. All listening units, possible shots fired at the elementary school. We got a call from a guy saying he's walking into the school threatening to shoot all the kids. Air to 0825. Was that Aspen Elementary? Listening to that audio, you might think that there was a school shooting in Aspen, Colorado that day. Thankfully, there actually wasn't a shooting that day. That call was a hoax call, a prank phone call. It's what many people call a SWAT hoax. So these are incidents where somebody calls in to the police with a fake threat in order to ignite a big police response. So over in the films team at The Economist, we've been investigating the reality of these incidents, SWAT hoaxes in American schools, for the past six months. I've produced a film about it that has just been released. Caitlin, how big of a problem are these SWAT hoaxes? So it was actually a lot trickier than we thought to try and figure out the scale of this problem. From some of the data that we've managed to access, we think that they seem to be increasing. So in the 2018 school year, there were around 70. In the 2022 school year, there were closer to 450. So that's a six-fold increase in four years. In our film, we decided to look quite specifically at one place that was impacted, and that was Aspen Elementary School in Colorado. One person I spoke to is a man called David Ball. He is the superintendent of the Aspen School District. At that point, I called the assistant chief of police and asked Bill what was going on. And he told me that we had a situation in the district and that someone had called 911, said they were going to shoot up the elementary school and that they had heard machine gun fire. It's a rush of emotions, and and it's really hard to say it's this or that. I mean, you know, it, it it's fear, it's anger, it's fury, and it's on a loop going over and over. And, you know, you're terrified for the kids and teachers. You're terrified, you know, that this is going to be one of those events that we have experienced just way too often as a country. Who is doing this? 
It's very difficult to actually figure out who is behind these incidents. And that was a big part of our investigation. So you might think, and there is a kind of common conception, that swatting incidents are seen as just a prank, you know, something that's easy to just brush off and not that big of a deal. But the reality is, is they tend to be quite organized, they're very sophisticated. For example, Aspen wasn't the only school to be hit in the incident in Colorado. There were 16 other schools who were targeted that day. And it was a very well-orchestrated attack where this caller was working through a list of phone numbers in alphabetical order and making them very quickly. So there's a level of sophistication there that is quite scary. But also the technology that is used in these swatting incidents more generally means that it is actually very difficult to track down who they are. So, for example, some swatters advertise their services on the dark web. They can be asked to be paid in cryptocurrency, which is notoriously difficult to trace. And technology like AI is sometimes used to generate fake voices on phone calls. Oftentimes, the callers also don't actually use normal phone numbers. They use services called VOIP services, which are basically phone numbers that can be generated online. But if you use a VPN to do that, it's very hard to track down where that person's actually from. So it's a pretty difficult question to answer. One person that we spoke to over the course of our reporting was a woman called Jennifer Dobler. She is an ex-FBI intelligence analyst, and during her career, she investigated numerous swatting incidents. But she made us very aware that today's swatting calls are very different. The pipe bomb threats that we would experience or the bomb threats that we experienced in New York City on a regular basis, most of them didn't make the news because at that point, we were numb to it, we were used to it, and law enforcement did have a really good handle on those responses. But it's a different thing when it's happening to schools and children, and when you pair it with the school shootings that are going on, it takes on a whole new life. It's something that absolutely, in my opinion, is terrorism. Caitlin, tell me a bit more about how sorting is affecting people. These incidents have a real impact on everybody who's involved. So the staff, the students, the police that respond are all heavily emotionally impacted by this. These hoaxes might not make the news in the same way a shooting does, but the trauma that is suffered by the people who are involved can take a very long time to heal. That was probably the worst hour of my entire career. And, you know, it's still traumatic for many folks when they discuss it, when they think about it, when... You know, they go back uh, and relive it. It's a very traumatic event. Why is what is doing this? What is their motivation here? It seems like the main aim is to basically create chaos. It seems like that is what these people are trying to do. In the Colorado incident that we looked into in the film, it is still being investigated by the FBI. So it's an active case and there isn't a lot that we can learn until that person is actually caught. Sadly, they haven't been caught yet, but there were some clues that we were able to kind of piece together from police reports and calls that we listened to. When the caller made his consecutive calls, he quite clearly worked off a script. So he said the same things in all of these 17 different calls. And one thing that he repeatedly mentioned was the fact that he had an AR-15 and pipe bombs. In some of the calls, the dispatcher asked him his name and he said his name was Nelson. When we posed that information to a cybercrime expert called Kevin Hendricks, he immediately made the connection to a man called Kaya Nelson, who is a serial swatter who is now in prison. And what that led us to think about and what that definitely led Kevin to make a connection to was this caller in Colorado seems to be a copycat 
of Kaya Nelson. What can be done to stop more of these happening? The fight back against SWAT hoaxes is ramping up, and through the course of our investigation, things actually changed. Law enforcement seems to be starting to take these incidents a lot more seriously. So in the summer, in Colorado, SWAT hoaxing was made a felony. 15 other states in the US have done the same. The FBI now has a database of these incidents. The reality is that these incidents have continued to happen and seem to be continuing to happen. There have already been hundreds in this school year so far. And if the trend continues to grow, many more schools, parents and children could suffer the same. Caitlin, where can we watch the film? So the film is live on The Economist's YouTube channel, so you can check it out there. There's also a link to it in the show notes. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Number five, Ibble Dibble, with one Dibble Ibble, calling number four, Ibble Dibble, with two Dibble Ibbles. Few series have had the ability to irritate audiences as reliably as Netflix's The Crown, whose sixth and final season will be released today. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. Of course, there's been plenty of affection, too. There have been at least 73 million viewers worldwide, critical acclaim, and loads of awards, including 11 Emmys in one year alone. And the Emmy goes to The Crown. The Crown. The Crown. But overall, irritation definitely reigns. The series has been criticised for its portrayal of Prince Charles, who people said was too scheming. Your capacity for self-delusion never ceases to amaze me. For its portrayal of the Queen Mother, too nasty. The country is disgusted by him. It's an irrelevant article, written by an irrelevant man. And of the Duke of Windsor, too Nazi. I didn't say that, but you thought it. It's been called all sorts of names, including crude, cruel, intrusive, impertinent, and several sorts of nonsense, including pure nonsense, nonsense on stilts, and a barrel load of nonsense. And the fact that this season features Princess Diana's ghost has led one historian to call it farcical, just a sick joke. But there are two ways to look at the crown. One is as a royally expensive royal drama. After all, it was rumoured to be Netflix's most expensive show yet. But the other is to see it as an excellent, if impromptu, education in what history is and what it is not. Millions of viewers who might never have wondered at all how historical narratives are formed are, with each season of The Crown, turned into amateur historical analysts. Rare is the person who doesn't get out their phone to Google almost every scene as it happens. It's the marriage. I am suffering. No, you are not suffering. We're all suffering having to put up with this. They, know. they Google primary sources, they fact-check phrases, they especially scrutinise photographs to see if it matches up with what they're seeing on screen. And again and again, the same question in living rooms across the world is asked, is this history? And to be honest, they're asking it with good reason. A great deal of the crown, even before you get to the ghastly prospect of Princess Diana's ghost, is manifest historical bunkum. Prince Philip definitely did not, as was claimed in the second season, inadvertently cause his sister to be killed in a plane crash. A newborn was found in the wreckage. Something he found so offensive that he reportedly considered suing Netflix. And Prince Charles 
definitely did not hint to the then Prime Minister John Major that Queen Elizabeth II was past her prime and ought to make way for the younger royals. You're coming to Balmoral? Yes. Well, then you'll have an opportunity to judge for yourself whether this institution that we all care about is in safe hands. And the late Queen was not Olivia Coleman, nor even anything very much like her. You will not separate or divorce or let the side down in any way. And if one day you expect to be king... I do. ...then might I suggest you start to behave like one. So the short answer to the question of whether or not the crown is history is clear. No, it is not. But the longer answer is more complicated. The history might be problematic for the crown, but it's also part of its appeal. Many viewers' interest isn't just in the drama, it's in the historical backdrop. It's in the finer and, for most people, forgotten details of the Suez Crisis. It's in the severity of the Great Smog of 1952. And it's in the assassination of Lord Mountbatten by the IRA. At 13.05, the British ambassador was informed that there had been an explosion on Lord Mountbatten's boat. The IRA has claimed responsibility. All things which many viewers either didn't know about at all or had forgotten about. In its defence, the Crown doesn't claim to be history. On the contrary, it has a new disclaimer that says it's merely a fictional dramatisation that was inspired by real events. So to get cross with the Crown for not being history is, on this reading, a simple category error. It never claimed it was. Though it's also not quite so simple as that. For one thing, the is it history question assumes that there is something that is history, that's true and beyond reproach, and that there is something separate and all made up that is drama. But that just isn't the case. History has a long and august tradition of blending fiction and truth. And this goes way back. Not for nothing was Herodotus, so-called father of history, also known as the father of lies. And when the Greek historian Thucydides wanted to quote a speech, whose text he didn't have in front of him, he just made it up. And he had, as he explained, the speakers say what he felt was demanded of them by the various occasions in which they found themselves. Modern historians are obviously much more careful and don't, or shouldn't, make things up. But it's foolish to imagine that sleight of hand and imagination aren't involved in writing history. Moreover, historical facts are tricky things. They were willing to lie to protect other members of the family but they weren't willing to tell the truth to protect me and my husband. You don't have to endorse the your truth truthiness of Oprah Winfrey's infamous interview with Meghan Markle to know that more than one historical narrative can actually be correct at the same time. Were you silent or were you silenced? The latter. This doesn't mean that there are no facts, but it does mean, as the royals themselves might tactfully say, recollections may vary. Newspaper fact-checks of the series, and there are many, often start by harumphing, but tail into ho-humming. After all, so much is debatable. And to make matters even more confusing, history does not sit preserved from the pollution of fiction like an insect in amber. History and drama interact. Those close to the royals admit that the family has watched The Crown and been affected by it. The series reportedly led the late Queen to think about how she had treated her sister, Margaret. And you need to give Margaret some room, some space in which to shine. She needs to shine, that one. And as elder sister, you ought to be confident and generous enough to respect that. I am. 
Are you? But while the debate over whether or not the crown is history is fraught, it's also largely moot. To write history, as one philosopher observed, is the only way of making it. Historians might complain that Shakespeare's Richard III is incorrect, or that the crown is. But both of them have something more powerful than accuracy, namely popularity. In Shakespeare's day, people were already complaining that there were those who learnt their history not from the chronicles, but from the playbooks. And the crown continues that grand tradition. So while the crown might not be true history in the academic sense of the term, that is immaterial. I am protecting the prime minister. I am protecting democracy. It will change how history is seen, nonetheless. The smoke and the mirrors, the mystery and the protocol, it's not there to keep us apart, it is there to keep us alive. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow.